and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur, and I am not a pleasure unit. You've just stolen my line. Thanks for that, Cam. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> uh, and joining us this week is the one and only Alan J. Porter. Alan, thank you for coming aboard. Thank you. I'm looking forward to uh, watching this movie as soon as I uh, get away from balancing my head on one chair and my ankles on another and stopping my heart for three hours, we can uh, we can head into this movie. Should be fun. <laughs> now, I, um, I, I, I suppose I'll set the scene a little bit for how you joined us. I, I put out a message on Shane Whaley's Spyberry group on Facebook looking for a couple of experts about the Flint series, or people that are quite passionate about it, and, and you, you responded to that sort of question and it kind of went from there um so i think my first question is what is your connection to the flint series um it's basically my father's fault um i'm going to really age myself now but going back to the days of uh video rental stores um he and i were in a video rental store one friday night looking for a movie uh, when he was visiting my house and he was like you like james coburn and you like james bond you should try this movie and he pulled uh Oh man, Flint off the uh, off the shelf, and uh, I watched it, and uh, I thought it was a bunch of fun. And uh, when we got our first DVD player, um, this was actually one of the first DVDs we bought. I I just went up and looked. Um, I I have the 2002 DVD release, so this movie has been hanging around in our house for a long time, um, and I've watched it on and off occasionally throughout, and uh, I really enjoy it. And I was actually uh, watched it middle of last year when I was doing research for an article on various James Bond spoof movies. So um, it was interesting to watch it from through that lens. And then obviously I re I rewatched it the other night, trying not to watch it from the James Bond perspective, but just actually sit back and enjoy it for a movie in its own right. So, so long history with this movie. I uh, always enjoyed it. Which is, I suppose sort of pivots me to my next question quite well. Uh, you have quite a lot of things that you do you have a few podcasts you write a lot of books and you actually have a bit of a, a off connection to me and cam apart from james bond which i'll get to in a second but just for people who, who don't know who you are alan what do you do as a job you know what do you produce what do you make um so basically i describe myself as a writer day job i'm in uh, marketing for software i'm a product marketing guy for a software company so i do a lot of content creation writing podcasting speaking engagements, all that stuff, promoting our software. Um, but uh, my real passion is is sort of writing pop culture stuff and high adventure fiction. Um, done a lot of pop culture reference books, uh, historical fiction, short stories, novellas, uh, written some comics. Um, and, but probably most of the folks in the spy genre know me through my James Bond stuff. I authored the uh, James Bond, the history of the illustrated 007, the history of bonding comics around the world. Um, um, I'm co-host of the Honor Majesty's Secret Podcast Network. And my wife and I have a new James Bond book coming out in early April, uh, the James Bond lexicon, basically an encyclopedia of the fictional worlds of James Bond in movies, novels, comics, TV, etc. So. Oh, very cool. I'll have to get a copy of that. That sounds like a uh, my new reference guide. Yeah. Ah, um, that little connection, one of the books that you've written, uh, I think it was, I think it was one, or maybe there was a couple, but you've done a Star Trek 
book, a couple of reference reference books, I believe. That's correct. I did uh, history of Star Trek comics, and I've also done essays in various other Star Trek uh, nonfiction anthologies. Yeah. Yeah, because that's how me and Cam first connected. Was at a Star Trek convention of all things. Oh, cool. yeah, cool. Yeah, it was our love of Star Trek, and you also written a book on um, the kind of the world of Batman collectibles. Yeah, that, which yeah, yeah, which I, I when I saw that because I, I looked you up before we obviously did this episode, I said, hmm, he's written on Star Trek, James Bond, Batman. He's like the successful version of me. <laughs> You wouldn't say that if you saw the royalty checks. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, um, that was actually my first book way back in the uh, mid to late 90s was the Batman Collector's Guide. Uh, and it still staggers me that it occasionally still sells the, the odd copy now because it's like 20 years out of date. Um, but uh, yes, it's uh, that was a fun project, but I'm never, ever going to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, nonetheless, we have the one. and I, Yeah, I mean... Uh, Definitely, we have some interesting comment, I will say for sure. Sounds like it. Yeah, Perhaps we have some more things to talk about other than spy movies. That <laughs> <So>. <laughs> sounds like another podcast. <laughs> it certainly does. <laughs> right. um, well, I, I think we've, we've kind of mentioned it already, Cam, but uh, what are we doing this week? We are doing the 1966 spy spoof, Our Man Flint, starring James Coburn. I uh, had heard of this because you told me about this film but I had never seen mm-hmm. it until watching it for this episode. Uh, Alan, we kind of know your history on it. Cam, do you have any connection? Not a lot. I became, I guess, mostly aware of this movie. I- I'm sure my parents had probably thrown the name around back in the day because my family was obviously um, you know, big into James Bond. And I have vague recollections of my parents dropping the name Flint or possibly Matt Helm as well. But it wasn't until probably the first Austin Powers came out that people really started talking about Our Man Flint. I remember Mike Myers name-checking it a lot in interviews. And I still didn't really make it an appointment watch. It just kind of was like, okay, that's something I should see at some point. Probably a you know handful of years later, I picked up a copy at a um, thrift store. Um, I love that the DVD was marketed as the original Man of Mystery. They were very much trying to get on, on that uh, Austin Powers marketing push. Um, so I, I watched it that way. And... I, I watched it and I was like, this was so much weirder than I expected. It kind of took me by surprise. Um, I don't even know if I really knew what to make of it at the time. I was actually really excited to see how I would feel about it on a second rewatch. So my opinion has kind of shifted. But I remember the first time when it ended just going, huh, okay. <laughs> it is strange how this film is quite connected to the uh, to the Austin Powers and I also wrote down the connections to Armand Bashir, the Deep Space Nine episode. Uh, yeah, that's what I was really curious about because uh, you and I had obviously seen Our Man Bashir, the DS9 episode, many times and talked about it on podcasts. So I can't wait to hear your thoughts on this movie. Yeah. Um, well, before we crack on with that, let's talk about the Letterbox.com synopsis. Our Man Flint, the original man of mystery. When scientists use eco-terrorism to impose their will on the world by affecting extremes in the weather, Intelligence Chief Cramden calls in top agent Derek Flint. Hmm. Yeah. Doesn't give anything away. No. Yeah. Doesn't doesn't give away the irreverent tone of the movie, that's for sure. Did, was the Man of Mystery moniker made up by the Austin Powers films, more or less? Is that what this is coming off from, or was it? Was it to do with this film? 
now I'm questioning that. Alan, do you know? Because I assume that was actually because of Austin Powers they wanted to sell DVDs, but now I'm wondering if that was the original tagline. I think it actually comes from this film. Um, what really struck, struck me watching it this time around um, was, yeah, I knew Austin Powers referenced this movie, but when I was watching it this time around, it made me realize how much Austin Powers is almost a remake of this movie. Mm-hmm. There are so many things, you know, I, I knew about the phone ring tone and things like that, but, um, you know, just going through it, there's the whole, yes, there's the man of mystery type tagline. There's, you know, the agent who has his own jet. Um, there's the judo stuff. There's the fact he knows everything. There's the fight in the uh, in the bathroom stall. Um, you could say the uh, pleasure units are almost the fembots. There's the, there's the without giving too much away. The you know threatening the world through volcanoes. The big drill. Um, I think even some of the uniforms were reused in Austin Powers, if I remember rightly. I mean. I always think of Austin Powers as a sort of spoof on the Bond movies, but as I was watching this, I was thinking Austin Powers is actually almost a remake of this, which is a spoof on the Bond movies. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it was a lot closer connection there. Um, and this movie is referenced by so many other people when you watch documentaries or there's little pieces of it referenced in so many other spy movies going forward. It ha- for what was basically, I think, pretty much a throwaway joke at the time in 66, it's had a huge influence. Well... I see. I'm quite keen to get into what everyone thinks of it now, and also plotting some of these connections. But I, I actually wonder how this film even started because it is quite a bizarre creature in itself. <laughs> so, Cam, can you fill me in? And and Alan, I imagine too. <laughs> yeah. Um. So basically, this project began as a story by a writer named Hal Fimberg. Um. He is a fascinating guy. If you read into his backstory, he began as a vaudevillian. He became an orchestra leader. And he was also a writer as well as songwriter. And his most notable credit was he wrote the 1941 Marx Brothers movie, The Big Store, which I've seen. It is actually pretty funny. Um, He was mostly known for doing a lot of TV. So he came up with the concept of what this movie is. This is right after James Bond has blown up. You know, um, uh, Goldfinger, Thunderball are both, you know, phenomenons. They're changing the landscape of spy movies. So... It makes uh, a lot of sense that someone would want to riff off that at this point in time. And he co-writes the screenplay for this movie with a guy named Ben Starr, who mostly just wrote TV. Um, He'd written a lot of episodes of My Favorite Martian, Petticoat Junction, Mr. Ed, shows like that. And this, this script and idea was very much championed by producer Saul David. Now, Saul David was a guy who had worked at Bantam Books as a chief editor for a long time and had moved into film producing. In 1965, he'd had a big hit with the Frank Sinatra film Von Ryan's Express and was ready to continue on. And this seemed like a really good idea for him. Now, it was his idea to hire James Coburn. And James Coburn says, I credit producer Saul David for the Flint films. He was responsible for the whole thing. He also cast me in the role. So we can enter the director now, but very much it seems like Producer Saul David was the visionary behind um, what this movie ultimately came to be. The director, though, was Daniel Mann, who had done um, an Academy Award-nominated Best Picture candidate in 1955 called The Rose Tattoo. He'd also done some other prestige stuff like Butterfield 8, which won Elizabeth Taylor an Oscar. He'd also done a couple Dean Martin comedies, um, 1962's Who's Got the Action and 1963's Who's Been Sleeping in My Bed. 
Um, so he was kind of a weird director in that he would go from like very like, um, you know, uh, like prestige type films to really goofy kind of sex comedies of the era. So he's an interesting choice for this movie. And I think it'll be interesting to talk about his contributions to this movie, which definitely juggles the two. Um, a couple other things I'll just note. Uh, Raquel Welch tested for the role of Gilla, um, but was not chosen. She wound up instead in the producer's other f- follow-up film from the same year, Fantastic Voyage, where she became an icon. So I'm not really sure why they passed over Raquel Welch for this movie, but history turned out okay. <laughs> so that's kind of the behind the scenes. There's not a lot of behind the scenes details written about our man Flint that I could find. I was digging through like old um, like newspaper clippings even for those quotes from Coburn. I'm, I'm curious, Alan, if you knew anything that I didn't cover there. No, you've pretty much found whatever I have. It's uh, considering the influence that it does have, there is actually very little written about it um, conte- and a very few contemporary sources as well. So interesting that you mentioned the TV thing. While I was going back and looking at the cast, it sort of struck me how this was mainly a TV uh, cast an active a cast of TV actors, people who had even Coburn had had a long TV career. I mean, this was one of his earliest films. This is like his ninth or tenth, I think. And I think it's the first one he headlined. I may be wrong on that. Um, but virtually everybody else was who is in it was well known for what they did either on Broadway or on TV. There's actually very few movie actors in this in this film. So it reminded me in some ways of the 1966 Batman movie, which came out the same year, where it was an entirely pretty much TV crew creating motion picture that the credits to this movie actually reminded me a lot of the Flint credits <laughs> and a similar kind of vibe actually. Yeah, very much so. It was also, uh, as you, you, you rightly said, Bond, uh, Bond was sort of really exploding. This was right in the middle of the spy craze. I mean, if you think about it, Man From Uncle had started in 64, Get Smart, I think was 65. Then you've got this. Then following year 67, you've got the, uh, the Bond uh, Casino Royale spoof. Um, you've got the, the uh, OK Connery with Sean Connery's brother. Um, and then in 68, you got the start of the Matt Helm series. So uh, this is right slap bang in the middle of the sort of super spy um, craze as well. So I can see, you know, the producer wanting to jump on that bandwagon as well. Oh, it makes a lot of sense. And I mean, the movie had a budget of $3.5 million, And the total box office is a little muddy. I found two numbers, both confirmed by verifiable sources. So it either did $16 million or $13 million. Either way, quite successful off a $3.5 million budget. I think we can agree on that. It sounds like a winner. I mean, maybe one was international and one was domestic. Uh, I found another number for like $7.2 million domestic. So I, again, it gets very muddy with Flint for some reason. Like usually when we're covering this era, movies can get a little confusing because of um, re-releases. And um, I wouldn't be shocked if that 7.2 was an original number versus a re-release number. Mm. And then the other ones are taking into account re-releases. So, yeah, again, when you're covering anything from really earlier than the 70s, the box office gets a little confusing. It sounds like it made its money. So, Oh, it definitely made its money. It got a sequel, which we'll cover in the future. And uh, for this year, um, we've covered this year before. But the number one movie was The Bible in the Beginning. Number two was Hawaii, starring Julie Andrews and Max von Sydow. And number three was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. There was quite a few spy movies, as we kind of hinted um, just a couple of seconds ago. Um, The only one that seems to have done better than um, Our Man Flint was The Silencers, which was a Matt Helm film. Um, 
the ones that didn't do quite as well, there's a string of them. We got Torn Curtain, which was a Hitchcock film. We've got Murderer's Row, which is another Matt Helm film. We've got Funeral in Berlin, the Harry Palmer second entry. We've got the Quiller uh, Memorandum which with uh, George Segal. And we've got A Deadly Affair with James Mason. The only other things I'll note about this movie is less than a year after this movie came out, there was an Italian remake of it called Il Vostro Super Agent Flit, starring Romando Vianello. So Flint very much had an impact on the Italians, at least. Did that film do any better than this one? No, it wouldn't have done better. No. <laughs> and there was a 1976 TV movie as well. There was, yeah, later down the road. Yeah. Okay. Um, see, for a film that uh, I found to be quite strange, it hasn't didn't have that much of a, a weird conception. It seems to have just come together really easily. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it was in any way a mess. Um, the only thing actually that's interesting too is that um, James Coburn was known, but he wasn't a star yet. Like he'd been in movies like Magnificent Seven, Great Escape. He was more of a supporting actor at this point. Um, and so casting him was really interesting and did turn him into a star. So that's the only other thing of note. But in terms of the production itself, it seems like it kind of just went off just fine. Okay. Well, I'm going to go guest first. So Alan, we know you've seen this film several times, but you'll revisit recently for this podcast. How do you feel about this film now? Um, well, I'm actually going to quote my wife who uh, says she was seeing it for the first time. I don't think she was, but I think it's a long time since she last saw it. But anyway, um, she, she came at it with very fresh eyes. Uh, and at the end of it, she said that was really ridiculously enjoyable, which I actually thought was a really good summary of the movie. Because um, it is ridiculous. It's crazy. Um, it's over the top. Um, but it's fun and enjoyable. And uh, it was just good to, you know, as you mentioned, we we seen Coburn in supporting roles, in fairly serious supporting roles, in, in fairly dark supporting roles. Too. So it was sort of fun seeing a, a younger James Coburn play a fun part. And um, it was also very noticeable. One of the things my wife picked out, and of course she would, was the, as she said, it, he was very lithe in the way he moved. He was uh, a lot more believable phys- in his physicality than some of the Bond actors, which I thought was an interesting observation. Um so, uh, yeah, I, coming at it again, I, I, as I said, trying to watch it for, in its own right rather than st- watching it to study it, um, I actually enjoy, enjoyed it this time um, more than a couple of previous viewings. Okay. What about you, Cam? Okay. So, um, yeah, I enjoyed my rewatch of this movie more than I enjoyed the first watch. Um, maybe I was just more on its vibe because I actually knew more what to expect from it. Um, and it is... You know, we've talked about a few of these other 60s movies, not so much on the podcast, but off. Like I've referred to the 67 Casino Royale, and that one is, I've always felt something of a mess. Whereas like this one feels very focused in what it wants to do. And I really did enjoy a lot of the comedic setup to this movie. There's a lot of weird goofiness, and I love the weirdness. And that is a word I'm sure we'll be using many times over the course of this review, is that this movie goes to really strange places. And I found a lot of that really fun to watch. Like, sometimes 60s surrealism can turn me off in a movie if it kind of goes too far. But I felt like here, it was the right amount. It had that sort of visual splendor that you see on like the Star Trek original series. Like there's a lot of moments in this that reminded me of the original Star Trek just visually. And, um, you know, I could talk a little bit about the pace. I think the pace gets a little slow, especially in the middle sections, but I did have fun with it. Uh, But Scott, I'm the most curious. What did you think? 
I had two very different experiences of this film. My first watch and my second watch. Yeah. I think my expectations were in the complete wrong place on my first watch because I, I'd heard bits and bobs from you about it being a completely insane comedy spoof Bond film. Uh, I'd seen trailers and it kind of played up the same thing. And I know it influenced the Austin Powers. And so I thought I was going to have a laugh a minute. <laughs> yeah. I didn't laugh really in this film. A couple of like, ha ha ha. You know, because that's how British people laugh, apparently. Um, of course. Of course. And and that was it. And I thought, well, that was quite disappointing. And as you mentioned, the pace was a bit off. Um, but, you know, I liked things like the set design was really great. It did have that 1966 Star Trek vibe. I guess Batman was the same year as well, um, I think. But And I enjoyed that, but I just thought I didn't really get anything out of it. I found it to be quite dull and I didn't laugh. So... Why would I enjoy it? If I want to watch a Bond film, I'll watch a Bond film. Mm-hmm. And then I sort of reflected on it. And I think, I think I just took those expectations away and went back into my second viewing as, as it just as a piece of work in itself, which is basically what Alan did in his most recent watch as well. And I enjoyed it a lot more. Yeah, I mean, I can relate. That first time, my opinion was not that much far off of where you were, where I was like scratching my head going like, okay like uh, you know a lot of comedies and it's something like i find comedy a lot of it doesn't age great in that um the pace of comedy changes so much decade to decade you know you look at a comedy now and it's like a joke every like 20 or 30 seconds like they just keep them flying right to keep the pace moving um i watched barb and star go to vistel del mar last night right before i watched this and like you just look at the speed of the comedy one versus the other it's just such a different world but I, I find this one, it's the vibe of it. Like once you can kind of adjust yourself to the vibe of it, which I don't know you can do as much the first time through, um, it really does click for me. And I mean, I'm sure if I had seen this movie in the 60s, my I would have probably adjusted to it very quickly. But watching it now, uh, or the first time I should say, I, I was just like kind of a little put off because I wanted if it wasn't going to make me laugh consistently, I wanted something that was going to kind of pull me in like a James Bond movie does, but it kind of operates in the middle. To me, it is just kind of fascinating because of its um, mixing of the two worlds. I just, I think for me, if once I took that pressure off of it, trying to be this laugh a minute and I saw it as more of an homage mm-hmm. to, to Bond and to other spy films around the time, spy TV shows, I just found it better. I, I think I actually laughed more on my second time round. Well, I think the first time through, you're also like, um, you're kind of taken aback at the weirdness of moments. So you almost don't laugh. Whereas the second time, you know, they're coming and you're like, oh, this is hilarious. Like, it really does feel a lot funnier the second time. Yeah, I think you're right about readjusting your expectations. Like I said up front, that's sort of what I did this time around and really enjoyed it more. Um, And I think it sort of fits in that sort of proto bond, as you said, sort of part homage, part spoof. but done with done with heart and sort of appreciation of of the genre as well, which is I think one of the things I picked up on this time. Um, it seems sort of more of a heartfelt homage than some of the other spoofs, which are sort of pointing fingers at it. This one was sort of really embracing the source material. I thought. Well, this movie also seems to be going out of its way to actually lay out a spy story. And I think that's something a lot of the Bond spoofs don't do. I mean, the Casino Royale film, we'll talk about it on its own merits later down the road, but I mean, it's not really trying to tell you an actual spy story. It's kind of like, this is the Bond world, let's just be goofy. Um, This movie's actually 
trying to, you know, create some breadcrumbs. Yes, it's ridiculous, but it is trying to tell you a spy story. So I can totally appreciate it for that and that it is having a, you know, light, goofy time. But again, your character is actually tracking clues. He's going across, you know, the globe, although a lot of the globe feels like a lot of sound stages. But nonetheless, it's actually trying to give you the sort of storytelling you would get in a Bond film of the 60s. Yeah, I mean, it's a straightforward plot, and I like that. And by the way, as a sidebar, I will defend Casino Royale 67 till the cows come home. So, um, <laughs> Very nice. I appreciate anyone who will take on that battle. Um, but uh, yeah, th- this one does have a, a very linear plot line. Uh, it's easy to... It's a nice... This is, a, for me, was a nice, relaxing, fun movie to spend a Friday evening with a good glass of wine, sit back and just let it flow over me type thing without having to think about it too hard, I guess, uh, and have fun and just enjoy the character and the visuals and stuff. Um, you, you actually mentioned the TV-like um, feel from it. It is interesting, or I found it interesting, that a lot of the sets and the props from this movie went on to be used in a lot of 1960s light sci-fi shows, like uh, some of them were used in Land of the Giants, some of it was reused in Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, I think some of it was used in the Time Tunnel, so all those Irwin Allen spoofy sort of silly sci-fi shows that I loved as a kid, um, a lot of there was a lot of flint um, visuals in those shows as well, So, uh, which I actually didn't realize until fairly recently so i'm glad you didn't say that it was used in star trek because i was wondering where the mugatu was <laughs> <laughs> well it's notable that one of the art directors on this movie and i was curious if it had any bond um players involved just because of the visuals of the movie but one of the um art directors there was two but one of them was jack martin smith who'd worked on cleopatra the uh, elizabeth taylor film which is like one of the biggest movies ever made uh, not financially, but in terms of just production value. He'd also worked on Fantastic Voyage, the next, basically for the same year with Saul David. Uh, he did Tora, Tora, Tora further down the line. So this is a major force. He's a three-time Academy Award winner. And so you look at a movie like this and you go, well, I'm sure this was just kind of a, spill, uh, a uh, silly Bond spoof they were putting together, but they had serious fides going into the creation of the world of this movie. And it holds up maybe the best of anything in the movie. What do you think they were attempting to do with this film? Was it meant to be a laugh a minute and it wasn't funny? Or was it meant to be a light homage, as, we, as we're saying? I don't know. What do you think, Alan? I've always thought it was an attempt to sort of do... How can I put this? A Matt Helm without the drinking... Um, to do a, a, a light homage and sort of launch their own franchise. I, I mean, I don't think we, people were using... the the word franchise back then, but their own series of movies. Um, a bit like the Matt Helm ones had taken off. Um, a bit like Man From U.N.C.L.E. was taken off on TV. I, I think it was sort of trying to milk that cash cow, but do it in a a little more of a subtle way, I guess. Um, and give Coburn a, a starring vehicle, I think was also part of it. Um, get him out there, which it certainly helped launch his career, as you said. Uh, because they actually built a lot of this movie around Coburn and Coburn's, the things that Coburn could do. You know, I was joking earlier about the uh, the relaxing sort of the plank maneuver between the two chairs. Um, I read they wrote that into the script because Coburn could actually do it. And sure, that was, that was one of his tricks was he could actually balance like that. Um, the judo, the fencing, um, you know, it's stuff that Coburn was actually doing. So I think they sort of we're trying to build a series around Coburn as the leading man and his, his capabilities uh, and his on-screen presence. So, um, But could could Coburn stop his heart for three minutes? Or, I mean, three, three hours, three I hours. Say. No. <laughs> Yeah, 
Yeah. It's funny because I remember, you know, Bond does that in Die Another Day and a lot of fans were just ridiculing that. And I'm like, huh, apparently Flint beat him to it for three hours, no less. Yeah. Well, Flint beat Bond because, I mean, Flint beat Bond to the whole villain in a volcano thing as well, because this is a year before you only live twice. So uh, Flint was the first first guy to have a villain in a volcano. That was really insane, as well as the villain um, Hans Gruber. <laughs> very notably named uh, Hans Gruber. But like that guy has a real Blofeld look, and we hadn't seen the bald Blofeld yet in the Bond series either. No, no. And it, it did make me wonder if the uh, the diehard scriptwriters got the name from the Flint movie. Well, you also wonder too, you know, when you get into the Bond franchise a little bit later down the road with like Diamonds Are Forever, that one feels almost like it's trying to be a Flint movie, you know, or like the spoofs of the era more so than what the original Bond idea was. Yeah, I'm never quite sure what that movie was trying to be. Um, but that's, yeah, that's that's actually a good observation. I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but it does have more of that vibe to it. Definitely. Yeah. I, I was curious, though, like, what Scott, what did you think of the world of this movie? Um, this world where we have Zowie, the... <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what to call them. A, what, globe? Well, I actually have the, what the acronym means. It's the Zonal organization world intelligence espionage that is one hell of an acronym <laughs> it sounds like the nonsense the government would come up with though to be fair zonal <laughs> it was the 60s man clearly they were all on something no kidding no kidding but what did you think of the world of this movie i think it was well developed for something that we just sort of dropped into it's interesting that they rely on this sort of billion dollar brain style computer to finds their agent, uh, this this Zowie. Uh, they're threatened by the bad guys of the film. They're going to destroy the planet unless they do what they say. And so they have to find an agent. And they can't go with 0008. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Hmm. Um, a very so, subtle joke. <laughs> very. Uh, yeah, this film is full of them. Uh, and so they, they go with our man Flint. And you you, you buy the world. You, you get it. It feels lived in. It feels like it's not too crazy. I, I, I buy it, really. Yeah, I thought it was nicely grounded in that as much as you can ground uh, absurd material like this, but it didn't feel like they were just kind of making it up as they went or it just felt really thrown together. It felt like they had a little bit of um, some thought behind this insane world they live in. Well, there were rules. Mm -hmm. Despite the bad guys having some sort of secret weapon to you know melt the polar ice caps, you know, there wasn't laser guns like Condor Man or anything like that. It wasn't it wasn't insane. Right. It was just just slightly pushing it. Mm -hmm. And I like, as you mentioned, about dropping you in the middle of it, because if you think about the character of Flint, you know nothing about him, really. You know what he can do, but you don't actually know much about him or why he's in the situation, why he has the apparent wealth he does or what he he, he does outside of that. There's obviously a backstory with with him and the the commander, um, the Lee J. Cobb character, um, who clearly does not want him to be the agent of choice. Um, (laughs) But you never really find out, other than that, that he just beyond the fact that he thinks that Flint can't follow rules. But there's obviously a whole backstory there they don't don't go into. Um, they, they don't explain why he has the harem, other than he's he's Derek Flint. Um, I, I actually like that that you we're not, you're not getting all that backstory. You, you are literally just dropped into the middle of this world in crisis, and they need to go find the one person who can solve it. Um, and you're just taken along for that ride. I, I really like that aspect of this movie. I had a wonder partway through this movie and that when you look at the original Bonds, I don't, 
Bond is obviously a very cool character, but I'm not sure he's supposed to be 60s cool because he has lines where he's like slagging the Beatles, for example. Like he is a company man working for the government. It feels more so like Flint is supposed to be cool. Did you guys pick up on that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think he was meant to be sort of the epitome of cool and suave and yeah. I think he's meant to be above it all by you know several degrees. So he's he's way above this film. He's he is ten steps ahead of everyone. He is he's laughing at the joke of this film the whole way through. He's basically winking at the screen, but it doesn't actually detract from the film, which is strange when you compare it to say something like uh, the Man from Uncle remake we discussed really early on mm-hmm. with Henry Cavill's character, who just seemed too big for the film, but it actually detracted from it. Whereas I think it it must just be testament to James Coburn. But it also feels like Derek Flint, the character also is in with like the youth culture of the time. You see him like dancing at nightclubs and stuff like that. You would never see Bond doing that. You would never see him kind of engaging in the sort of uh, free, uh, this is definitely like going for the free love 60s kind of style. Like Bond, there's a little bit of a slightly more conservative edge to that character versus a Flint who feels very much like a, a man of like swinging 60s. Yeah, I think also part of Flint was the fact he could just blend in or he'd just fit in with, with any situation he found himself in. You know, be it uh, a swanky nightclub in New York dancing away or in a seedy bar in Marseille, you know. Um, he, he just sort of could fit into whatever environment he was in. Um, Bond tends to be more of, as you said, the sort of the slightly more conservative casino gambling type guy but you probably wouldn't find him hanging out in a discotheque so yeah and it's also um with flint he seems always kind of laid back like that's his approach whereas bond is always kind of that coiled you know animal or that weapon that's about to go off at all times whereas like flint he seems just like totally cool to go with the vibe man do you think that's something to do with uh the nationality of bond versus the nationality of flint you know you've got that british sort of reserved, stuck-up, potentially, nature, especially like the olden-style British people. You know, you look at the Harry Palmers of the world. Hmm. Um, whereas he's this guy's American, you know, free love, baby, it's all happening, hippie stuff, all that all that thing can be sort of pumped into this character. And it's fresher, whereas James Bond is, is hunkered down in these books by Ian Fleming. Flint is new. Yeah, I mean, I mean Bond, no matter how you re- interpret Bond, Bond is still a creature of the ni- mid to late 1950s at his heart um and as you said flint flint is very much a creature of the sort of mid mid 60s uh, and that's a big cultural change in those 10 years i think it makes sense we didn't get like um a whole lot of flint storytelling post the 60s because i don't know what this character would be in like the uh more depressing eras of like the 70s for example like i feel like this is a guy who can only exist at this place in time yeah, if I remember the uh, the TV movie, which I think I've only seen once, they they sort of made him into a private eye and sort of made him a bit grimmer and stuff. And I think in doing that, lost what Flint was. Plus the fact you, you didn't have a character as charismatic as Coburn playing him either. So um... that actually brings me to a question because as Cam knows well enough, Alan, you're not so up on this, but I'm an idiot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I don't know really anything about James Coburn. I don't think hmm. I've seen any of his films, except for maybe The Great Escape. Um, I'm trying to think of like his most recent stuff, you know, near the end of his life. Did you ever see the Mel Gibson film Payback? 
If I did, I've forgotten it. Okay, because he was one of the villains in that. Um, he was in, he won an Oscar for the movie Affliction in the late in the uh, late nineties. Um, Surely you've seen the Magnificent Seven. Uh oh. So, so really? like I said, I'm an idiot. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Not the Great Escape. I said I saw that. I said I saw that. Um, okay, he, well he's in the Great Escape, so that's that's notable. That's all I've got. Hitchcock Hitchcock charade. Uh, you know what? <laughs> uh, charade charade is on our um, list to cover further down the road. So okay. Scott will be introduced again to uh, to James Coburn. I think he's in a couple of things we'll be covering in the future. Um, he's in another um, spy film that I'm blanking on the name of. That's also um, on the list as well. But yeah, he was one. Of, but the thing is, to be fair, like he wasn't like one of the big movie stars of his era. Like we aren't talking about someone who was, you know, like name in lights. Like when we're talking about Dean Martin doing Matt Helm, like Dean Martin was probably a bigger, was he was a bigger star than James Coburn. James Coburn had more of a character actor vibe to him. It's just that this was him crossing into an actual mainstream success, name above the headline kind of movie. Yeah, Coburn was the guy, if you wanted somebody who was cool, quiet, but had a sense of threat of violence about him um, or command about him, he was sort of the guy you cast in those sort of cool character roles. Well, see, that, that was more, that's basically where my question was heading. See, I had no real experience of him apart from that one film we've discovered. And so watching him in this, I was discovering him as an actor, you know, in, in, in my watching process. And you were speaking about him and how this film got made and all these things he's been in. So you both seem to have this idea of James Coburn in your head away from our man Flint. This is all I've got. Right. And I think he does a fantastic job. He, he sells this film. Oh, I think he's really cool. Oh, certainly, yes. This, this is a great Coburn vehicle. Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, my earliest introduction to Coburn was he played the uh, knife-throwing um, cowboy in, Magnus- in Magnificent Seven, and that had a huge impact on me as a kid. I just thought he was so cool in that movie. Um, Robert Vaughn from... Um, um, uh, what you would call it? Uh, Man from Uncle is also in that movie, but um, uh, yeah, like I remember watching this the first time and being kind of thrown at how easily uh, Coburn segs into this sort of hip, cool cat kind of vibe. Like that's not what I thought of him as as in the past, and I completely buy it. Like I think this movie is carried much on his shoulders. And one of the things I thought was the most interesting watching it though was. As a personality, he's just not as strong a personality as a James Bond. And I think, you know, people who are detractors of this movie would say like, well, this character doesn't have the personality you see in a character like Bond or some of the other spies maybe of the era. But to me, that kind of added to the energy. Like this movie is very breezy. And I I feel like that really is aided by like carried along by the performance. I, I don't know who else could have stepped up to this role in my book now I, that I've seen this film. For me, he is flipped because that's all I've seen. But, you know, one question I had sort of following from that is how old was James Coburn when he made this film? He was, he was, uh, I believe, 41 or 42 when they shot this. Okay. It's, one of the things that sort of jumped out at me is they've got this, as, as you say, Cam, he was 41, 42 when he filmed it. Um, he kind of looked like an older guy with these very young girls. Uh, but then you look at like Sean Connery's Bonds around the time, he's starting to look a bit older. So that wasn't really a problem. But because I'm experiencing it now, it, that felt like it was a bit of a strange thing for me. Yeah, but in that time, the, the, the gap between leading ladies and leading men tended to be large. 
just generally. So. Yeah. Uh, oh, like you think of the movie um, Sabrina from a handful of years before this, where it's like Humphrey Bogart's 50 something and Audrey Hepburn's like 20. Uh, it was a thing. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Even the, even in the bonds around, you know, Roger Moore's first bond, you know, he was 45, 46 and Jane Seymour was what, 20? Yeah. In Live and Let Die. So yeah. Um, 60s and 70s, that was, ten, or even the 50s, uh, it tended to be older man, much younger woman was the the norm. So, I, I was uh, really interested, Scott. What did you think of his living situation in this film? <laughs> um, well, I, I, I tried to show this film to my other half, uh, and she just sort of tuned in for the scene where he's living with four women. He's, I don't think she wanted me to get any ideas from that. <laughs> Um, I'm glad you mentioned it, though, because, you know, firstly, it's actually really refreshing for a 60s film to have this progressive view of a polyamorous relationship. It's played very just like low key and and very pleasant, isn't it? (laughs) I was going to say it is, and he clearly cares for them all. But it was also interesting that when he was heading out on the mission and he was talking to them, they each have a different part of helping him run different aspects of his life, too. Um, they all had some agency. They all had some role to play in the way that his life was run. Um, and I thought that was good. And um, I think also towards the end, we you know, we joked about the pleasure unit idea, but when they were brainwashed into becoming pleasure units and then he sort of snapped them out of that, that, that underlying message that, you know, women and their sexuality is not just for men, it's for them as well and how they want to run their lives i thought uh, my wife actually said at the, at the end of the movie she said i wish they explored that a bit more because i thought that was really cool um which i thought was an interesting pers- female perspective on that aspect of the movie um so hmm. but you're right they they did they, they did play it they didn't sort of point fingers at it it was just a natural part of the the setup on that world and the storytelling of flint's life and the life of those women around him uh, you know and it was the kidnapping of those women that really drove him to take down the bad guys. It wasn't the fact they were going to destroy the world. It was the fact that they kidnapped the people he really cared about. And you could see Austin Powers like winking at the camera if that was him. Yeah. In that scene. <laughs> uh, you know, maybe someone's, you know, chewing on a sausage. Or or even like um, Roger Moore would be like raising an eyebrow or something. Or, or you know, the Sean Connery Bond. You just kind of get that wry look in his eye. Um, and like Coburn never cracks in that regard. He just plays it completely straight in. It does feel like the sort of thing that's kind of 60s progressive where, you know, as Alan said, like they're saying, you know, these women's sexuality is for themselves and, you know, for who they want to share it with, not for men to prey on. But at the same time, these four women are not really characters like they have no dimension whatsoever. I, you're right. They don't really have much. They do have some agency, like like Alan said. One thing I did pick up on and Cam, you mentioned it earlier, was the pacing. I kind of want to talk about that in a second. But yeah. when I was watching the film for the second time, I started drifting off a little bit uh, as I was watching it around about the middle part. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about this polyamorous relationship. And so I started like riffing on Bond film titles that had Flint in it instead. Okay. Would you like to hear what some of the ones I've come up with? I sure would, Scott. Okay. So the first one I got was The Wife Is Not Enough. <laughs> uh, take it or leave it. Take it or leave it. Uh, then I came up with The Spy Who Loved Us. Mm, yeah, that's actually, a, I like that one. That's good. Uh, and then one that I'm not proud of, and you can, of course, cut this out if you want, Octopussies. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm eternally sorry. <laughs> let's, let's go with The Spy Who Loved Us. 
moving on. <laughs> um, okay, so but the pacing. I noticed it both times. Uh, Alan, you haven't really mentioned it. How do you feel this this film was paced? No, I think it, you're right. It did drag a bit in the middle. Um, I didn't think it was... I think there was a little bit of that writer's block of I know where a thing of... Our, I know how I want to start this. I know how I want to finish it. How do I get from A to Z? Um, and yeah, it did drag a bit in the middle. Um, some parts of it I thought were quite funny, but the whole scene in Rome... Um, with him getting locked in the safe and stuff, that felt a bit superfluous. It didn't really drive the plot forward much. Um, so that that bit in Italy, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm with you there. I, I could have probably zoned out at that point as well. Um, but until him sort of, I think all that was to, was to get him on the submarine so he could get to the base and it didn't really sort of fit beyond a need to move the character from physical point A to physical point B. Um, it, it didn't really advance the plot much. So, yeah, I, that, that middle bit did, does drag a, a bit. Um, but it's two very different tones at the beginning. You, you, as you said, you've got sort of more of the detective thing up front um, of, you know, picking the spy, him getting the usual thing, him getting the equipment. That was fun. Doing the detective work, getting to Marseille, figuring out the, the Buir Bay stuff. And as somebody who loves Buir Bay, that cracked me up, mm. that whole scene. Um, I, I need to do that, going to my favourite French restaurant, take one sip of the Buir Bay and then pay and leave. Um <laughs> well, um, but uh, I like that whole detective s- s- vibe at the beginning, and then at the end, obviously, you've got the whole hidden island, blow up the bad guys' base action sequence. But that, yeah, that bit in the middle, I would agree, does does tend to drag a little. It feels like a lot of the energy in that first third comes from the introduction of this world, and to me, that's where I was really on board was seeing Flint's apartment and the German shepherd that escorts people to come meet him. Um, obviously meeting the the four women he lives with. Uh, it being introduced to Zowie and seeing Flint brought into that. And like bizarre scenarios like the harpist being replaced in an assassination attempt. Like all that sort of introductory stuff. There's a lot of fun there. And so you're kind of like leaning forward, really sucked in by what's going on. I especially love the guy who is killed. And they bring him back to life by plugging um, Lee J. Cobb's hand into a ceiling light, holding hands with Flint, and then touching the guy's heart. Moments like that are insane, and they totally had me laughing. But when it gets to that middle section, it's kind of like the movie going, oh, wait, we have to have a spy plot. And that's where it feels a little more like, okay, we need to kind of put in the shoe leather here. We've got to get, from, as you know, Alan said, from point A to point B. And I, I like the stuff with them trapping him in a safe. Like, I think that's fun. I like when they turn that into like a cafe in the street. All really funny stuff. But it just feels like the pace really kind of drops down. And the inspiration that is really firing on all cylinders in the first third kind of sags. Well, I think that also leads me on to one of my other criticisms of the film. And that is the bad guys. Yeah. Um, you've got this evil trio of scientists so that you could question if they're evil or not i suppose but they want to they want to you know, melt the ice caps and but they basically want to demilitarize the world yeah that's their idea uh but it's their way or the highway and then they also have these two enforcers as well but for me none of them really worked what do you guys think yeah there's no real sense of threat there i think um even though they do set off two um volcanoes it, it it doesn't really come across. Um, I think it becomes more threatening towards the end when you actually realise that 
as you said, they want to demilitarize the, the world and set up this sort of uh, paradise, but they'll only do it if you accept it through brainwashing, uh, which again was another interesting area that I think they could have played up on is the whole concept of free will. And, you know, is a utopia utopia if, you, if you're not accepting it through will, if it's forced on you. Um, so, I, I, you know, that's when it was only really when he got to the brainwashing thing, I really felt any real sense of menace from them. Um, the, the, the two um, Stooges uh, it, henchmen were pretty ineffectual um, and pretty useless. Um, and I never really got the thing with what was his name? Uh, Rodney or something? The Yeah, Malcolm Rodney. Malcolm Rodney, yeah. Because there was a whole thing about Rodney. the Rodneys always get on the wrong side. And again, it's hinted like there was a backstory there with the Rodney family and Flint or the agency that was never really expanded on. Um, I don't know if something was cut. Um, but he seemed um, particularly ineffectual. Um, also didn't help that for, for my mind, he's the he's he's Michael Knight's boss in Knight Rider when I was growing up. So he was a good guy. And I <laughs> couldn't take him playing a bad guy. Um, and uh, yeah, Gilda, uh, the character of Gila, the character of Gila, um, I know that was meant to be like a redemption arc, but she never really felt evil enough at the beginning for the redemption to really carry much weight at the end. It would have been interesting to see how Raquel Welsh would have played that character. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, Gila reminds me a lot of the um, the uh, Bond villain um, that whose name I'm blanking on in the moment um, in um, Thunderball, the one who Bond sleeps with, and she's like, "Why would I turn because of one night with you, Fiona Volpe?" Thank you, Fiona Volpe. I kept thinking Fatima Blush, but that's never say never again. Yeah, um, yeah, Fiona Volpe. Like she kind of reminded me of that, but without any of the fire or heat. Yeah, because like Fiona Volpe is a very memorable character versus Gila, who. Like, she's pleasant. Like, I liked, uh, you know, Gila Golan in the role. Like, she's, you know, very cheerful, seems to be having fun, bubbly personality. I thought she was, you know, totally effective in the movie in terms of being likable. But in terms of being a compelling villain, not so much. And the turn is, you know, you kind of see it coming from a mile away because she's never been portrayed that villainous. And I made a note because... I actually thought the villain Hans Gruber, played by Michael St. Clair, was actually fairly memorable. He had a distinct look. He dies very early, though. And um, then we're left with uh, Malcolm Rodney. And I made a note, Scott, you'll appreciate. I wrote, Malcolm Rodney is Remo Williams' villain boring. (laughs) (laughs) Another attempt at an American James Bond that didn't quite work. Yeah, like Malcolm Rodney is just a really dull villain and I had forgotten about the scientists the second time through because it'd been enough time since I'd watched it the first time and I'm going like was this guy the main villain because I can totally understand why I don't remember him and the only time he gets to be any fun is I guess there's two moments one where he gets like kicked in like the I don't know the abdomen or something by Flint and he like screams and hits the ground that made me laugh and then he puts on a gauntlet near the end and I was like this villain should have been using a gauntlet through this movie. That would have been at least a shtick. Mm. And in an era where you have odd job, like Goldfinger was a huge hit. Why would you not have henchmen with a weird gimmick? Like that seems like something they would want to have fun with. Yeah. I must admit when, when I saw the gauntlet, I was like, did I miss that earlier? Was he like, did he have a metal hand and I just didn't notice or is this something he put on? But you're right. He put it on and then it got knocked off very quickly. And it's like, I had exactly the same thought is they should have gone with that introduced it earlier maybe he did have a metal hand that had been fashioned as a with the spikes on it and stuff and he'd had always had that and they'd used it earlier on so it, it yeah i think that was an opportunity missed with that character yeah and i think it would work if the reveal of the scientists was like oh 
you know what? There's our Blofeld. Like these guys are super memorable, but they're actually a very boring trio. <laughs> it's actually kind of surprising. Yeah, I think they introduced them too early as well um, on screen. Um, they should have kept them as shadowy figures. Though I did like the shtick of playing with your expectation as to which scientist was which because of the names. Um, True. I did like that. I thought that was quite funny. That, uh, I also um, did enjoy when Rodney killed all three of them with a hook. Yes. <laughs> that was like a, a, a strike at bowling. Like he managed to hit all three of them off <laughs> into like an explosion. It was amazing. They had plenty of room to jump sideways, but no, no, no. They're going to do the Prometheus jump into the wrong way and get killed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but that's actually, it's, it's quite bizarre that, you know, we're taking shots at these villains and quite rightly so, but I still think the film works. Yeah, I think it's because of the overall vibe of it, but also just like the message of they're trying to create this sort of utopia. And if anyone seems like someone who would want utopia, it would be Flint. And so it has enough of a, um, you know, a theme running through the movie that you don't care as much about the villains. Like in Remo Williams, we cared about the fact that villain was so, so boring because it really negatively impacted the movie in a big, bad way. Whereas here, you kind of shoulder shrug and go, you know, I wish they'd had someone that was maybe a more memorable riff on your Goldfinger or your odd job type villain. But overall, honestly, when you get to the reward room and you have these like four lovemaking scenarios, I'm like, this is so insane that I will never forget it. It's interesting as well because, and, and Alan, you put this thought into my head. It's a credit to you. This whole island, this galaxy island, I guess it's, it's the opposite of Spectre Island, definitely. Uh, um, no, no, Scott, this is bigger than Spectre. <laughs> it certainly is. Um, you know, it feels like it's the ultimate temptation for Derek. Yeah. Like, it, this is exactly what he wants. You know, luxurious living and everything at his fingertips. But he obviously doesn't want to be, you know, enslaved of the mind. Well, he doesn't seem like an impulsive character at all. He seems to want things on, you know, his own wavelength, but he's not someone who's fighting to create that for the rest of the world. He only kind of cares about his own little world. But I also took it that he also cared for the other people that he didn't want them Mm -hmm. to be living through it in a brainwashed state. It was like, yeah, you can do this, but as long as you want it, not because it's like forced on you or... Uh, you know, you've been made to service. Because um, even though he focused on freeing just initially his four companions and Gila, then later on, I think he destroyed all the machines that let everybody else sort of get freedom of mind. The only thing I, I thought at the end was, despite all that thing about freedom and letting people free, they blew up that island and you never saw anybody else escape. <laughs> they died horribly screaming. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Or, or blissfully screaming. Or blissfully screaming, <laughs> yeah. but yes. Yeah, that too. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, no kidding. And, you know, when you you have a uh, only set number of barrels to sail to freedom, like the Hobbit, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, Well, I guess it leads us on to the escape at the end. That was one of the funny things I noted down. Just choosing to throw people off of a waterfall in barrels, it, it does get a laugh out of you. Oh, it does. And I, I feel like... Sometime around this era, there was that guy that went down the Niagara Falls in a barrel. I'm wondering if that was in the air at that point. I remember that being a thing at some point. Oh, it uh, could be. Uh, maybe, maybe. Yeah. It did make me think of The Hobbit, though, genuinely. Like, that's all that I made a note that just said The Hobbit scene. 
because uh, that was something I very much remembered in the book, The Hobbit, that was carried into the three-part epic that was the Hobbit trilogy. <laughs> uh, well, one thing as we're talking about uh, Galaxy Island, did either of you notice the the potentially the goof they made with the disco room? Hmm. No. No. Okay. So. Uh, to set the scene for everyone who maybe hasn't watched the film, although I would recommend you watch it uh, before we really tackle into this thing. It's a bit late now. Um, so there's all these different realms inside the galaxy room. There's like the there's the making out watching a, a movie room. There's a disco room where you can dance the night away. Uh, there's, a, there's like a it's like a gladiator, like a Greek Roman sort of room. That one looked like um, one of the scenarios from the Star Trek episode, The Cage. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it did. Um, and so the disco room is basically filled with people dancing to disco music. Well, it's not disco, it's the 60s, but you get the idea. Um, and so you can't hear any music. And then the doors swing open and a bunch of girls come out and they're like, hey, come in, come in to Derek Flynn. But the problem is there's two side windows to the doors. Uh, but then people just lean out of the side windows and wave him in. So why is the sound not coming out the whole time? Well, I haven't noticed it with the doors, but my wife, Jill, did notice it at the end of that scene when he rescues one of his companions and moves to the next room. They just push a curtain aside and walk through into the next room. And she said, that curtain does a really good job at soundproofing. (laughs) I don't know that I can question it too much in a film that has a lighter with like 85 different weapons applications. Oh, I love that. I will say I did like that because when they... When he's getting the uh, the equipment, and Lee J. Cobb shows him clearly the attaché case from 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 Russia with love, um, and, then, and also the Walther PPK and the Walther well. PPK, and he, he's like, and Lee J. Cobb's like, oh, we've modified this; it does sixty five different things, and he just holds up the lighter and says, this does eighty five, eighty six if you want to light a cigarette, um, and and the fact that he just had that one gadget that did everything, um, he didn't have like the armory of gadgets; he just had the one thing and used it throughout, and uh, including to light a cigarette. So yeah, I, I love that whole stick on the uh, on the on the gadget aspect of the super spy genre. Not to mention his uh, his shirt with a stethoscope built into it. Yeah, <laughs> that's a that's a great set of spy tools right there. Yeah, the uh, the watch did some things as well, but it felt like the watch often worked in tandem with the lighter. Yeah, the watch did seem to do everything except tell the time. There was actually no hour or minute hands on it. Yeah, I like the little hand that comes out though to kickstart his pulse again. Yeah. That made me laugh every time. It's always a sign with it, I think, when we're talking about these films that we enjoyed it because then we just start nitpicking tiny little things, but really we don't mm. have anything bad to say about the film overall. So, I mean, I guess we could just go through the characters really quickly about what we thought. Yeah. So we, we said a lot about James Coburn. I I was blown away by his performance. Um, I was expecting another Austin Powers, and I think that's what pulled me away the first time round. And I'm glad he wasn't Austin Powers. I very much believed him um, in a forklift running down a goon in another scene that felt very Austin Powers. But yeah, like I think a movie like this, what really helps is there's no mean spiritedness to Flint. I think that's leave that to the Bond movies where Bond has kind of that killer look. I like that he kind of is that go with the vibe kind of guy. And, you know, we were talking about him not wanting, you know, to impose this utopia on everyone else. And I think that's his thing. He's like, do your own thing, man. And I think James Coburn commits to that and you buy it. Like you don't buy that. This is an actor putting on an act. You buy uh, Derek Flint as a character. Yeah. I think your point about him and Austin Powers was him not breaking the fourth wall was, uh, you know, Flint 
played it was played straight within the reality of that world um and the world building around it it, it, it wasn't hey look we're making a movie nudge nudge wink wink uh you know grinning at the audience or whatever i think it was uh, he played because they played it straight within that world it made it a lot more believable and he's a good physical actor. You know, yeah. you see him doing the martial arts, you see him doing the fencing, but also that scene where he meets Triple O Eight and they're doing their fight scene while exchanging information. It's really funny. And you can totally see that it's, you know, um, you know, uh, James Coburn really enjoying these like physical gags. Definitely. By the way, I did like the running Triple O Eight gag. I mean, we had the one early that, can we use Triple O Eight? No, he's busy. Then he meets him in the bar in Marseille. And then the Gila at one point when she's on the submarine, he's reading a triple oh eight paperback. Um, I thought that was quite funny. Um, <laughs> and, I, and dismissively throws the book aside. Yeah. Was, what, what was a line like there's anybody like that in the world or something like that? Yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> Not to mention the, uh, the crude tools mentioned earlier on with yeah. the attache case. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, it still surprises me whenever I, you, you referenced it earlier that they actually got away with using the, the, the word specter in there. Um, that is this Spectre? No, it's Galaxy. It's bigger than Spectre. I, considering what was going on with the whole Spectre thing in the Bond environment, it just amazes me that they got away with using that. Um, yeah, I'm surprised Kevin McClory wasn't knocking on their door trying to get Yeah, someone. exactly. Yeah, unless they sent him a very large check or something. I don't know. <laughs> I, I wonder if it would have fallen into parody where you're allowed to because it falls under that parody clause. Yeah, maybe. Hmm. Um, and then moving on, I think we have uh, Lee J. Cobb as Cramden. Uh, who reminded me a lot of Colonel Ross from the Harry Palmer films. Oh, interesting. How come? What was it about him that made you think of Ross? More just like that curmudgeon boss figure at the beginning of the film. Maybe not the high five guy right at the end, where he's so excited to see Derek Flint. Um, but the, the bit at the beginning where he doesn't actually want Flint. He doesn't like Flint at all because he doesn't follow the rules, which is kind of his shtick. Um, and I, I like that. I suppose it reminds me of a lot of bosses I've had. <laughs> Uh, Lee J. Cobb is an amazing actor. I mean, you look at like On the Waterfront or The Exorcist. He's in so many classic films, 12 Angry Men. I love seeing him as this kind of flustering, kind of a buffoon. Like he feels a little bit also like the the boss in the Pink Panther films where he kind of hates Derek Flint. But like, in at least in this case, by the end, he kind of is won over by him. And I love at the start where everyone else wants Derek Flint and he's just like, no, please, God, no, no. But at the end, he's like a total cheerleader for Derek Flint. I'll be very interested to see that character's arc when we get to in like Flint to see if he uh, is reverted back to, you know, step one. But I thought Lee J. Cobb was really fun here. Yeah, I really liked him. Um, I, to me, he's always been a sort of an authority figure. Um, so it was interesting to sort of see him play up the sort of comedy parts here. I think I, I sort of really knew him from the TV show, The Virginian, uh, where he played mm-hmm. like the, the gruff judge uh, on the Western series. Um, I think he was in like virtually every episode of that show for, for years and years. So, um, and again, you know, you, you mentioned 12 Angry Men. He's, he's magnificent in that. Um, so just to see him sort of play something that wasn't so gruff and straight and that was, was fun. And uh, I, I liked his little character arc as well, as you said, going from, not wanting Flint to being Flint's big literal cheerleader at the end of the movie, I thought was was fun, and his and his relationship to the red phone as well that he sort of became, you know, <laughs> at the beginning he was important because he had the red phone, and by the end of the movie he hated that red phone. Um, I thought that was that was an interesting play as well, the way he 
the way he just used that prop, I thought throughout the movie was great. Whilst we have the phone as a discussion point, um, I didn't. I, I heard the ringtone, and I thought, where have I heard this before? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I, I figured it out later, but it took me it, it took me most of the film to realize that Austin Powers uses the same ringtone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, apparently it's used in other places too. Yeah, it's used to, used quite a lot in various movies. It's, yeah. The 60s was a great time for flashing red phones with Batman also watching. <laughs> so, although to be strictly accurate, Austin Powers uses it in reverse. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah. Ah. It's, it's reversed for the Basil Exposition's ringtone. But uh, Sorry, getting a bit geeky there. Um, but uh, No, no, that's that's <laughs> fascinating because then that makes me go, why? Yeah, I don't <laughs> know why, but uh, yeah. <laughs> there has to be a story there that feels so strange to do. Huh. Well, I'm glad we haven't got to, to the powers yet, which I want to talk about in a minute, but let's finish off the cast. So we've got uh, Gila Golan as Gila. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there was going to be a different casting at one point, but I, I think she was fine with, with the role, really. There wasn't a lot there. It's not a showcase role, that's for sure. I was going to say it's not, but I, the one thing that blew me away was when I actually started to do a bit of research for doing this podcast into her and her personal backstory is amazing mm-hmm. um that she was i don't know she was born a born in uh, poland in 1940 jewish family and smuggled away found on a railway station in france adopted by a french company hidden throughout the war um yeah sent to israel became a model discovered as a model became an actress yeah it's just Personal backstory is just fascinating. I never didn't know about it until I did the research for this uh, for this podcast. Um, it sort of made me appreciate her performance a little bit more. I guess I don't know why it would, but it, it sort of did. It's kind of nice to know where people come from. I suppose. Yeah. I actually watched a movie with her very recently called Ship of Fools, which was an Academy Award nominee from the sixties. Um, it's sort of a ensemble film about a group of travelers returning to Germany just before World War Two. And um, I know she was like really critically lambasted it for that movie. Um, A lot of people accused her of being miscast in that movie, but she has, I guess, a screen presence, but she doesn't have range Uh from what I've seen. And um, this movie definitely works to the screen presence point of view. Yeah. I will say when she's on screen, it's difficult to take your eyes off her. So Mm. that's true. That's true. There's an awkward moment at the end though. I don't know if you guys noticed it where, the women are being rescued from the barrels and the guy hauling Gila up is very much copping a feel. Yes, I did notice that, yes. <laughs> I did not, and uh, now I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> it's uh, not subtle. No, not at all. Sailors, eh? Mm, yeah. Um, well, we've kind of touched on the, the group of villains otherwise. So uh, Edward Mulhair is Malcolm Rodney. Yeah. Again, I think it was a it probably could have done with a few more revisions of the script to get something out of him. Or just cast someone who's a much more specific type. I think if you cast an actor who's, you know, like I think of, um, you know, James Coburn's, uh, you know, frequent co-star um, Charles Bronson. You know, you cast someone like a Charles Bronson type, you don't have to add much for them to come across on screen as a presence. And I just don't think Edward Mulhair has that. No, he doesn't. He can, like I said, I mean, not just because of his later role, he just comes over as too much of the good guy authority figure. I mean, he was well known for playing, was it Henry Higgins on Broadway? He was there um, for years. Um, he was not, he, while he isn't a very pleasant character, he's not exactly a villain. Um, and I think they could have done something more with the physicality, the gimmick of the, the mace or something like that, just to 
give him some love, threat level, um, particularly as Gila was going to sort of turn, have her turning point relatively early in the movie. They, they needed to do more with that character, I think, to build him up as a as a as a physical threat to uh, Flint. Right. Um, I mean, there's no other actors I, I really want to specifically call out. Anyone else got anyone they want to talk about? Well, actually, the uh, going back to the, the four young ladies, one of them was bugging me that I, I knew her from somewhere else. Um, the one who played the French lady, and I, was it Nicole? Um, was the character I think uh, Leslie Shelby Grant who played Leslie? Yeah, I knew her from somewhere, and you, you mentioned it earlier on. She was in the Batman '66 TV show, which is was bugging me where I knew her from. Um, but while I was looking at at their IMDb's, I noticed, with one exception, very few of the um, most of the the female uh, actors in this uh, movie did not have long careers. Um, Shelby Grant stopped acting in '74. The lady who played Anna stopped in 1970. The lady who played uh, Gina stopped in 1971. Um, Gila Golan herself uh, had a fairly short career. Um, the only one who sort of went on and did things was the lady who played the Japanese, um, Helen Funai. Yeah, Helen Funai. Mm-hmm. Um, she kept acting and did a lot of TV, mainly one-off appearances in various shows but until the late 80s. But uh, I just thought it was interesting. It was, a very, as I said, very much a TV show cast and most of the and a lot of them seem to have very short careers, of which this sort of seemed to be the high point. So. Hmm. What do you do after Flint? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. True. Yeah. I also wonder if this is just kind of, when you look at actresses of past eras, um, it's kind of pre-70s, a lot of them would retire because they'd get married and have kids. Like, it just seemed to happen much more so. You know, the juggling career and a home life just didn't happen as much in those days as it does now. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely the case with uh, Shelby Grant. Uh, she married another. She married another actor and uh, seemed to s- settle down. And then I think later on, her and her husband did a like a variety show or something. But uh, yeah. Well, one thing I want to talk about before we sort of wrap up any final thoughts and, and get to the knock list is I'm and uh, this was a cam pick uh, in terms of a movie. Mm. I'm glad you picked this first before we decided to tackle the Austin Powers films cam. Yeah, and also, you know, some of the other um, franchises like the Matt Helms and things like that. Uh, I think this was a good entry point for these 60s uh, Bond spoofs. I just feel like it, it really informs all those films. Like, I'm going to go back and watch the Austin Powers films for when we do it eventually down the line with a completely different set of, of parameters now compared to when I watched them, you know, as a kid. Right, yeah. You'll be much more looking at the reference points, looking at how they evolved ideas created in movies like this. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. Yeah, like I, I mentioned earlier, for, for me, the, the real revelation watching it this time around was just how much Austin Powers had taken from this movie um, and how much of, you know, like I said, I thought sort of the first Austin Powers movie in a lot of ways was almost a remake of this one, um, certainly in a lot of the major scenes, which I've never really, even though I've watched both movies a lot, I've never really watched them this close together before. And it, it sort of made those connections for me. So it'd be interesting to hear your guys' opinions when you actually get around to doing the Austin Powers rewatch as well. Mm-hmm. Are you a fan of that franchise, Alan? I love the first movie. I uh, can't stand the second two. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, I mean, I think a lot of people feel diminishing returns with that one, but the original is definitely pretty inspired. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just remember watching them not long after release, and I haven't really followed them up since. I don't really have much of an opinion apart from enjoying them as a kid. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, 
I think we'll throw to the sort of final thoughts now. So Cam, take us away. Um, yeah, like again, like this was a fun revisit for me. And we've had movies that we've revisited where I was like dreading having to rewatch it. Um, I, I can't say I was the most excited to rewatch Jason Bourne, for example. But um, this was a movie that it was fun to sit down and watch it again because my memory of it was not what it really was. It was more so much tied to the confusion of that first time through. And this almost felt like a new experience. And I enjoyed what I found. And again, a movie that has an eagle attacking James Coburn, I'm down for it. <laughs> yeah, no, that works for me. What about you, Alan? Um, like I said earlier, rewatching it by taking the critical uh, spectacles off and just sort of sitting back and enjoying it on a Friday night with a pizza and a good glass of wine. Uh, it was great fun. Um, I, I really, I should think this is probably the most I've enjoyed it on most of the recent rewatches because I was just watching it for the sake of the movie itself rather than trying to fit it into the overall arc of what was going on either in cinema or the super spy genre at the time and just, just enjoying a really good, uh, fun movie. Yeah. Um, as I said, or as my wife said, ridiculously enjoyable. I, I, I wrote that down when you said it. I think that's a very good way of uh, surmising this film. Um, the only thing I had to mention before we get to the knock list is Derek. It's a strange choice for a first name. Uh, maybe it was a thing in the 60s. Maybe that name had a resurgence in the 60s. I don't know. It's just not very cool here. I'm sure Alan can attest to that. Actually, that was my dad's name. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Which I actually think is one of the reasons he picked it off the shelf in that video store all those years ago and gave it to me. Uh, <laughs> this is me and another life, son. Yeah. Yeah. Any uh, super spy named Derek has got to be a good super spy as far as he was concerned. Yeah, I can buy that. Well, okay. Knockless time. Is our man Flint making it on? Alan, you're our guest. What do you say? Um... I actually gave this a lot of thought, and I think the answer is no. Um, I think it's a very influential, fun movie. Um, but is it a good spy movie? No, I don't think so. I don't think it's something I would give somebody to, to, to get into the spy, who's not into the spy genre as an example of a really good spy movie or a really clever spy movie. So um, it, it's a fun hour and a half, two hours, whatever it is, uh, entertainment. Um, but... Uh, I don't think it's that. I think it's a fun movie they shoehorned a spy plot into, and I don't think it's a, it's a upstanding, outstanding spy movie. Let's put it that way. Okay. What about you, Cam? I struggled with this because we've talked about the pacing, we've talked about villain problems, and like this is in no way a perfect movie. So it, to me, it became like when you're talking about 60s spy spoofs you know, the importance of this film. And I, I don't even know what its importance is at this point, other than for spy fans wanting to do the, you know, anthropology of digging into the history of spy films. I don't, this movie does not have much of a life anymore. It doesn't seem like they're trying to get it out there anymore. Um, so for me, it, it kind of falls on like an affectionate no in that I enjoyed the comedy. I think this is a fun world for people to live in. But I also don't know how many of the average moviegoers, you know, if I were to hand them the knock list, would enjoy watching this movie. It feels like something, once you're thoroughly seeped in the world of James Bond or Austin Powers and this whole genre, you want to dig into it and find kind of where a lot of these sources came from. But I don't know that Our Man Flint 
really looms large in the world of spy films. I, I kind of struggled with this one a lot, though. How, where did you come down, Scott? See, I was I was planning to listen to what everyone else's thoughts were first before I really made up my mind. But um, I can tell you I'm on the other side. Mm-hmm. Because my fear is, you know, we've covered a lot of comedy spy films so far. You, you know, from Jumpin' Jack Flash to Condor Man, both 80s films. But, you know, True yeah. Lies, that did make the list, although it was, it's sort of a comedy, but, you know, it's more of an action film. Um, my concern is there aren't many good choices for spy comedies. Now, that could just be there aren't many good spy comedies. Right. Or uh, should we sort of push the best ones to the forefront? Because if the list is complete in five years' time when we finish, or, you know, when we've, when we've exceeded all of our films... Um, if it means that all we've got is maybe one, I, I'm just worried that I shouldn't let this one pass without a nod. Right. Like, are we looking at it more as a cultural artifact that's important? Is is that maybe also the question? Well, if you look at like, we, we've spoken about its influences from, you know, Our Man Bashir, the Deep Space Nine episode, uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, or the you know Austin Powers films. You know, I think the comedy is kind of there. Its own comedy kind of works. It's not a laugh out loud film. And there are problems with pacing and the villains, but I think, I think it's a funny film. I think it's a great homage to Bond, and so I know that my vote is pointless now. It's two no's. But... Well, well, <laughs> okay. I don't know, Scott. Like the thing is, and I, I want to hear from Alan on this too. Like, do we have to take cultural importance into into um, consideration with this one? Maybe more so than some others. Yeah, I think maybe it's influence, because um, I, I sort of said no despite its influence. But if you want to talk about the genre as a whole, it is a very influential movie. Um, yeah, Scott makes a good point. <laughs> I'm just worried so, that if we get to the end, I mean, I, I'm not going to say where I fall on the Austin Powers films, because I don't really remember them. But I'm sure one of them was probably very good. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Maybe, oh, maybe, yeah, for sure. Maybe that's a shoe in for the knock list. Maybe, I don't know. But then I can't think of any other spy comedies. Well, you know what? I don't, I'm not going to give my opinion on this, but I'm just curious from Alan. You've watched, I'm guessing, a fair number of 60s spy comedies. You know, one's spoofing sort of the Bond franchise. Yeah. You know, you referenced Matt Helm earlier. Where does Our Man Flint rank for you among those other films? It's actually, I was just thinking about that as you were, as we were talking. Um, and I would say this is probably the one I rewatch of the spy movies, is, uh, the spoof movies. This is probably the one I've rewatched the most, other than maybe the first Austin Powers. So it, it's up there. Um, I've certainly watched it more than the Matt Helm movies. Um, probably not as much as I've watched Casino 60, Royale 67, but that's a whole other discussion. Um, so, yeah, it's probably in my top four, in my top four or five of spy move, uh, spoof movies that I sort of watch. Because I know there's there's a ton from that era. There is, yeah. And yeah. this is one of the few whose name still gets bandied about. It is, and it's actually one of the few that I actually have the DVD sitting on my shelf. Yeah. As opposed to something I'll, you know, maybe go and try and find on streaming or YouTube at some point and think, oh, I really should watch this. This is one that's sitting there that I can just grab and watch anytime I feel like. So, you know, I actually paid good money for it. So maybe that's an indication. Yeah. So like, I mean, I am actually very much open to the knocklist being something where we also have the kind of important cultural artifacts as well. So I, Scott, I might be willing to flip to yes on this one. Wow. This might be the first time I've ever sold you on one. 
Yeah, it's like, I can't argue that it's like, you know, as good as, you know, North by Northwest. It's not. Um, it has its issues, but it's also a movie that I think someone who wants to delve into the world of 60s Bond spoofs, this is probably the, at least from my experience, the best place to go. I mean, we're going to have different wings of the Noclus, surely. There's going to be like a animated wing and there's going to be a kids film wing. Now, you, you say Spy Kids 1, say we love that film. Now, that film isn't as good as North by Northwest. Yeah. But it's a great spy kids film. Yeah. So, you know what? I think I'm willing to flip to a soft yes on this one. Have I convinced Alan? I was going to say, if you're going to have a spy spoofs comedy sublist, then yes, I'd put it on that. Like I said, I was I was conflicted about it, uh, but I was thinking of it in terms of, is it a good spy movie? Uh, is it a classic spy movie? No, it's not. But is it a good representation of the super spy craze of the 60s? Yes. Well, then. It's a yes from me. <laughs> Scott, you finally flipped the vote to your uh, to your <laughs> side for once. It's been that was how impressive. Many, how many weeks has it been? How many, how many episodes have we done? Like 40 at this point? And this is the first time I've ever won a debate. That's right. Mark this down on the calendar, folks. It may never happen again. <laughs> well, there you are. Uh, it sounds like we've got three votes, and as such, despite uh, what some people might say, it looks like our man Flint is making the knock list. Uh, and as such, the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. Alan, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Thank you. It's been great fun, guys. Um, now, we spoke about it briefly at the beginning, but where can people hear more and read more of your work? Uh, so for spy bond uh, related stuff, uh, podcasts, you can find me uh, co-hosting several shows on the, on her majesty's secret podcast network, um, which you can find at secret.podbean.com or on iTunes, just search for Honor majesty's secret podcast. Sorry, it's not iTunes anymore. Is it? It's Apple podcasts. Yeah. Um, and, uh, books just search me on amazon at alan j porter um you can find all my books there but if you just want to keep up with what i'm talking about and doing in the world of spy stuff you, you can just follow me on twitter at bond lexicon uh, and that will will get all the links to all the good stuff that's going on and stuff i post every day um, and just general bond related spy related uh, discussions awesome well, I'll, I'll be picking up a copy of that uh, lexicon book by the sounds of it as so, will i out in early april so. consider, consider me a pre-order Okay. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll do it right after this. But uh, yeah, everyone, uh, Alan's credentials speak for himself. He does it's so much good work. Grab the books, subscribe to the podcast, do it all, because frankly, he's a much better at it than we are. <laughs> well, thank you. You just made my Saturday. Yeah. As Cam said earlier, he's a successful version of him. That's right. <laughs> um, Cam, what are we doing next week? Well, we're leaving the 60s behind and we're going back to 1944 to take on the Fritz Lang film Ministry of Fear starring Ray Milland. Uh, I have a great Fritz Lang story that I'm saving for next week, but I have never seen this film, so it will be a first time for me. First time for me too. I'm excited about this one. Well, there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch Ministry of Fear and join us next week. You can, of course, find the knock list and our man Flinters is gracefully joining that uh, that that huge list. Well, it's not too big at the moment, but uh, a great list of spy films. And you can find it at letterbox.com slash spyhards. And don't forget to follow us discreetly 
uh, on social media at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, yippee ki motherfucker. <laughs>